I feel like you have no context when you get here from previous weeks, and I feel like I have to tie up every knot and finish every statement, and I'm not sure I'm going to make that this morning. But the connection I would like to make uh, for at least some of you who have been in Chuck Hartman's uh, Thursday evening class on the nature of man, he showed us how in the book of Romans, the end of chapter 8, leads us almost directly with the parenthesis of chapters 9, 10, and 11 on God and his working with Israel. Not that it's not important, not that it's not a glorious passage, especially ending in the doxology that he does at the end of chapter 11. But if we read the end of chapter 8 and immediately, what does the I beseech you therefore in chapter 12 verse 1 connect to? That is the subject of my sermon this morning, the renewing of your mind. So I'm going to read from the end of chapter 8 and move to the beginning of chapter 12 and then we will pray. Romans 8 beginning at verse 37. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Chapter 12, verse 1. I urge you, brethren, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let us pray. Our Father, we do ask, uh, I ask for your help, and I ask that you would help all of us to open our ears to hear you speak, to take in the word that you have prepared for us, and that you would cause us to be transformed in the renewing of our minds, that we may certainly do what the apostle appeals to us to do, that we may prove what your will is. We may prove that thing which is good, that thing which is well-pleasing to you, that thing which is perfect in your sight. We ask that you would do this, again, for your glory, but also for the building up of Christ's church. In his name we pray, amen. amen. Perhaps you have heard the saying, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And if we were to speak of the unbeliever, we could go to a passage like Romans 1 and see where Paul says that their foolish hearts were darkened and that, that God gave them over to the darkness of their hearts, to the lust of the flesh, and to their practices. Jeremiah in chapter 17 states this about the human heart. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Believers sometimes say, you know, I need to get my heart right. Uh, you know, I, I just don't feel my heart is right on this. Or, I think I know my own heart. Well, Jeremiah, through the Spirit of God, says, no. 
Even the believer cannot know his own heart. Even the believer has a problem because even though we are forgiven, and even though Christ has defeated sin, and sin no longer reigns, has dominion in us, we still sin. And for many of us, that, that is an awful thing to, to deal with day by day. Why do I do? I, I, again, Romans 6, 7, and 8 build us up here, do we not? We hear Paul in Romans 7 saying that, that passage, you know, that that I want to do, I don't do. And, and that that I don't want to do, I find myself doing that. And, and he says, I find in my members this law working in me. The, the law of my mind says I want to do what God wants. The law of sin in me causes me to do that which I do not wish to do. And, and so when we look at the scriptures, it, it has, in my study on the heart, it has come to me that biblically the heart comprises really four things. If we think of the, our human body and the connection to our soul, and we've been talking about the tripartite uh, nature of man, that he is spirit and that he is soul and body. In, in our bodies, in our human flesh, we, we have a heart. Not, not that thing that beats and pumps the blood, but it encompasses the mind, it encompasses the affections, our wills, and our conscience. And those are the things that make up the human heart, I think, as Scripture speaks of it. And so I believe that Paul shows us here with his struggles with sin in, in Romans 7 that he speaks of and, and what that means that the, the law of the flesh is against the law of the Spirit. And he expounds that in Galatians chapter 5. There is that opposition then I believe that what he pinpoints for us is not the human heart, but the human mind. Because the therefore that he brings us to in chapter 12 says, this is how you do that. Based on the mercies of God, this eloquent appeal to our person, but to and through the pathway to the heart goes through the mind, then to the heart. And I believe that the problem with believers is not their heart, but their mind, which causes their heart to stumble. And so let's look at what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren. It's an appeal. It's not a command. It's this eloquent appeal, as someone has called it, from God based on what? based on sound doctrine, Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and the expansion in chapters 6, 7, and 8 of what the mercy and grace of God really means. In chapter 6, verse 8, we, we read, those who died with Christ shall also live with him. There's new life in Christ. There's salvation in Christ. Those are great and wonderful mercies. In chapter 7, we, we read these words, you were made to die to the law. In other words, you no longer bear death in your body, but you've been joined to another. Well, joined to another means we have a means of bearing honor to God. 
instead of death to ourselves. In chapter 8, and we just read part of it, that great consolation, you know, 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is consolation, there is compassion and hope in chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. These are the mercies that Paul refers to. He says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Based on that, based on what God has done, he makes this appeal. It's not just a bare command or a threat or cajoling us. He's saying, if you look at the mercies of God, can you not help but have a response in your heart and your mind on these things? To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Based on these tender acts, based on the gifts of mercy from a merciful God, he's saying this ought to, if you are a believer, if you know Christ, then there ought to be an, a response. There ought to be something that wakes up to this mercy. It's called by the theologians the indicative. He's saying this is what God has done. But Paul's expecting that which is called the imperative. What do you do in response to the mercies of God? And it's not to denigrate one or the other. There are those who say, you know, we have to be careful. You know, we, we use little phrases like, I'm not what I want to be, but I'm going to become. And it's like, yeah, there's partial truth in that. But if you put too much emphasis on what you are becoming, then it's almost like you kind of put down what Christ has done. And if we say only, you know, it's Christ, and, and you've heard the phrase, let go and let God, well, that's false. Because Paul is saying there is a response, there is an imperative, there is the indicative. God has done this. He has brought you to salvation in Christ. But he's expecting that there will be a response in the believer, in his body, in, in his physical person. And the language is here, here is the language of the tabernacle in the wilderness. Bring your sacrifices and offerings. And yet there is a great difference between that and this. Because the other sacrifices in the, in the old tabernacle, in the old temple, they were what? They were dead. And someone has said on the altar of God, there is no death anymore. Because Christ and someone read it this morning in Sunday school, I believe, because Christ has defeated death in the flesh. There is no more death on his altar. There's living sacrifices. Or, again, I don't mean to be crass, but you could say it this way. Don't give a sacrifice. Be one. And he expects that we will offer all of ourselves to God in response to his mercies. Because what does he call it? He says, this is your spiritual service of worship. Or literally reasonable, rational service of worship. Huh. There's the connection between worship, the highest communion we can have with God, and our what? Our mind. See, he's going to the mind. It's your rational. It, it doesn't mean just you know, 
crassly, again, logical, it's logical that you would do this. What he's saying is, you must be engaged in your mind when you worship God. It's not a letting go. And if we are not connected by our mind to God, then our worship becomes fanatical, or it becomes just some emphasis of the unreal. And so he's saying, present your bodies first a living sacrifice. Because he lives, the scripture says, we shall also live with him. But it's also a holy sacrifice. Holy simply means it's set apart and dedicated and devoted to God and God alone. But it also means, and this passage has it in it, well-pleasing to God. That, that God accepts that sacrifice. That God is pleased by it. And he calls it again, your rational service of worship. That your worship is informed, is directed, is understood by a renewed mind. The connection between the worship and the adoration of God and the giving ourselves to Him is through the mind. And there's a problem there, as we've already alluded to. Because in each one of us, there is an enemy within. Again, Paul says in Romans 7, I find in myself the principle, or it could be the law, that evil is present in me. And I believe there are those who believe that, that this is Paul before he became a Christian. But I would think, again, maybe this is a little sidetrack, but the word where he says, I find, that means that there is regeneration taking place. The unbeliever does not find that law at work in his members. Sin does not bother him. The flesh doesn't bother him. Just... The phrases, you see them on the t-shirts. You know, if it feels good, do it. That's the attitude of one who does not find this law. But if you are a believer, you will find this law. And it's almost, I think, we expect that you have the same struggle that Paul did. I want to do this, but I do this. And I don't want to do that thing, but I find that I do it. That struggle is called by some of the theologians indwelling sin. It is a law. And if we think of laws, there are several things that laws do. There are several ways that laws are presented to us anyway. There are moral commands and directions. Honor your father and mother. That's a law. They also come to us as forbidding things. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You're forbidden. But there are, and again, there are in Scripture, offers of reward for obedience. There are places where God says, if you do this, you shall live. But there's also threats of punishment in the Scriptures, are there not? The law that says the soul that sins shall die. But we think of laws of nature, do we not? You know, the older I get, the more I, I guess I get frustrated with the law of gravity, okay? I, I do have white man's disease. I have a six-inch vertical leap, 
okay? The law of gravity works mightily in me, okay? I cannot leave this earth. But it is a force that makes you, compels you to do its will. And all of these things, the commands and the directions and the threats and the punishments and the offers of rewards for this and punishment for that and the forces that bend you to do its will, are, I think are all encompassed in that law of indwelling sin. It is a law that desires to conform us to its every demand. And Paul knows that because in verse 2 of 12, chapter 12, he says, And do not be conformed to this world or to this age. He says, I know it's going to try to conform you. Or uh, one of the paraphrase, and I don't usually enjoy the paraphrase scriptures, but one of the authors has written, Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. But the law of sin wants to do exactly that. It wants to force you. It is a force that wants you to conform to its every desire. And Paul says the law of the spirit of life in Christ and the law of sin and death are mortal enemies. The law of sin wants you to not obey the law of the spirit. It will do anything in its power to conform you to what it wants you to do. The flesh, as sometimes the scripture calls it, sets its desire against the Holy Spirit's desire for you. And the Holy Spirit's desire is against the desire of the flesh. It's not our enemy. It's God's enemy. It hates God, but because you claim Christ and claim to be a son, daughter of God, it hates you. Because it does not want you to glorify and please God. That is the enemy within. It's not to be trifled with. It's not to be compromised. You can't ignore it. You can't rationalize it away. It is always there. Yes, Christ has bought us and paid the price for sin. But we still struggle with sin. We still have the enemy within. And it opposes everything we want to do for God and everything we would like to do with God and the way we would want to worship God. Again, Paul in Romans 7 says, it is waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. <laughs> and then he says in 12, do not be conformed to that law. Do not let it squeeze you into its mold. But what is his remedy? What is the great, efficient, effective transformer? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. The mind is the watchman of the soul. And if the watchman is taken away, which is what the sin, indwelling sin, wants to do, it has an avenue to the heart, to the affections, to the will, to the conscience. And we see that kind of that string 
in James chapter 1. You don't need to turn there. You're probably familiar with it. But let me bring out a few words from James chapter 1. He says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Well, there's, there's the first two of the four. Carried away. It's the context of fishing with a fishing hook, right? The, the last time, I'm not a fisherman, the last time I went fishing, my son, who's now, what, 26 years old, was eight, okay? That was the last time I fished. But I remember the basic thing. You got the hook, right? And you don't just put a bare hook in the water. What do you put on there? You put a, some kind of a lure. You put a cricket, right? Or you put a worm. And you hide the barb, do you not? And you, what is its purpose? To entice and to deceive. It entices, oh, that looks good. And what he says is, carried away. When your mind is carried away, the indwelling sin has convinced your mind, that thing that you're looking at over there, that looks good to you, doesn't it? It convinces you that that thing is good. That sin would be good for you. And you're enticed, he says, the second thing is because when you're convinced in your mind that something is good for you to do, then your affections then rise up and say, oh, I want that. I want to do that. And then the will says, yeah, let's do it. He says when each one is tempted, he's carried away. And he's enticed by his lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. There's been carried away. The, the mind has been shot off the wall and convinced, oh, that'll be good for me. My affections have gone goo-goo-gaga over it, and my will has said, yeah, let's do it. And then my conscience starts to be, what well, does the Scripture put it? Hardened. Oh, I, I thought that was a sin before, but, you know, we've been doing it, and I began to rationalize it. I began to say, well, it's not that bad, and it's not as bad as some other sins that my neighbors do. That pathway from the mind through the heart has totally deceived you, and you cannot worship God. You cannot, as Paul says, prove what is the will of God. You've been carried away. Been reading a book by a man by the name of Chris Lungard, and he, he, he very uh, openly says, I, I have, um, he says, I've kidnapped John Owen. <laughs> Based on the works of John Owen, he wrote a book called The Enemy Within, and this is what he says, that, the sin, that sin's goal is to convince the mind that this sinful act is somehow good for the soul so that the affections hunger for it and they will choose it. That, that's what sin wants to do. Convince you, if he can convince the mind, then he can get to the affections and the will and the conscience. Then he has your heart. If the mind wants to know the word of God, what's the flesh going to do? Well, it's going to convince you that there's some error there. Or it's going to say, you know, yeah, that's important, but not as important as this other trivial thing. Or it's going to put you onto some ignorant teaching. 
or twists the scriptures to say things that it does not say. But the mind is the sentinel of the soul. And Paul is saying here in verse 2, do not be conformed to the world. There's the outward. Do not be outwardly conformed to this world, but what? Be inwardly transformed. Inwardly, in the spirit of your mind, be transformed. And then what? Then the outward will follow. Because it's the mind that is the first line of defense. The mind is saying, to this thing that sin presents to us, will this thing please God? Will this thing that's presented to me be according to the Word of God? Is this attitude that it wants me to have Christ-like? Will this activity that I'm about to do, whether it would be watch a TV show or change jobs or move to a new community or say something to your child in a moment of panic, will this thing I'm about to do bring me into greater communion with God or will it separate me from him? Will it drive me away from what he would want me to do? Does it facilitate the world squeezing me further into its mold or does it facilitate me being transformed in the renewing of my mind? Transformation advances when the mind thinks and the mind understands and the mind informs you as never before. The, the Lutheran theologian Richard Lenski puts it this way, quote, the Christian minds the things of the Spirit, a thing he never did before. And he ceases minding the things of the flesh, a thing he always did before. As a son of God, he is led by the Spirit of God in his very mind. And so Paul appeals to, to you in the renewing of this great transformer of your heart, the great transformer of your physical life, and be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. There, by faith, this, we do this. Why? Because he's saying there will be this result. You will prove what is the will of God. John Piper says it's not just proving it. It's not just saying, well, that, it, there it is. He's saying it could be written, approve. You approve the will of God. We hear that a lot in this election time, right? I approve this message. Well, what does it mean? I test it out, and I find it good for us, and I find it well-pleasing to God, and I find it perfect in itself. I test it out, I try it out, and I delight in it because it's the will of God. And some people look at these as being adjectives. It's a perfect will, acceptable will. It's like I can't imagine God's will not being perfect. What he's saying is it's a totality. It kind of, it, it tells you the will of God is this. The will of God is things that are good for us and are well-pleasing to God himself and are perfect in and of themselves. That's the will of God. And many Christians get hung up on, is it the will of God that I buy this car or that car, do this or do that? And, and I think we, we need to stop. We need to focus on, is this thing good for me? 
Is it well-pleasing to God? And is it perfect in and of itself? I am doing the will of God. The other things are going to follow. The other things are going to follow in the outward appearance when the inward mind is transformed. And all of this is presenting ourselves. By faith I present myself, as he says in verse 1, as, as he calls it in Romans 6, we are instruments of righteousness. Present your bodies, he says, as an aid to your righteousness. Ha! That's presenting my mind to God to be renewed. Renewed by his word, re renewed by meditating on it and by prayer. You, your mind cannot be renewed without the word of God. That, it, it just cannot happen. If you try to say, my mind is renewed by anything other than the Word of God, and meditation on it, studying it, reading, learning, praying about it, then it's going to be deceit to you. And most likely it's going to be wrong. Paul says to the Corinthians, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. A man called C.T. Studd says, I, when I read that verse, I've been bought with a price. <laughs> I realized that, oh, I no longer own myself. God owns me. And he says, I have a choice. I can either be a thief because I'm keeping what is not mine, or I can acknowledge that I belong to God. And Paul says, based on the mercies of God and what he has done, the new salvation you have in Christ, present your bodies a living sacrifice. If you follow these things, your mind will be renewed. I will be transformed inwardly and outwardly. Psalm 1. Sometimes we forget that Psalm 1 speaks of believers. He says in Psalm 1, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. And here's the result. And He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in all He does, He prospers. That's because His mind has been renewed by the Spirit of God as he meditates on the law day and night, as he delights in it. See, he's approving it, right? He's tested it out. I meditate day and night, and guess what? It's a delight to my soul. By faith, all of the avenues into our being are open only to God. The pathway of God's word to the heart is through the mind, I believe. And through that medium... Our bodies, that physical being with which we worship God, our whole being is being renewed. By faith, we renew our minds. By faith, we offer our bodies a living sacrifice to God. Isaac Watts wrote a book on the improvement of the mind. And in the introduction, he says this. By acting without thought or reason, we dishonor God that made us reasonable creatures. We often become injurious to our neighbors, kindred, or friends, and we bring sin and misery upon ourselves, for we are accountable to God, our judge, 
for every part of our irregular and mistaken conduct where he hath given us sufficient advantages to guard against those mistakes. If we are not thinking Christians, if we do not meditate on the word, if we not understand the word and seek to know it, if we do not take advantage of what the psalmist says, thy word, you know, the opening of thy word gives light. Thy word is light to my path, a lamp to my feet. If we do not give ourselves to that, we dishonor God. So Paul says to us, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your rational service of worship, which is your thinking service of worship, which is your transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'll end with this quote from theologian Thomas Schreiner. Giving our entire lives to God is eminently reasonable since he has bestowed his mercy on us. The height of irrationality would be to refuse God's lordship after experiencing his merciful grace. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us to be as the Bereans, that we would search the scriptures to see if these things are so. That we will be among those who, who, as we sang even from Psalm 119 today, the, the psalmist who says, Lord, help me in thy word, lest I be ashamed. Father, that we would walk around saying that we are Christians and yet not submitting our minds to be renewed, not submitting our bodies to you to transform us into the image of Christ. And so we ask that you would do these things for your glory, for your honor, and for the building up of your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from Paul's passage to the Philippians in chapter 4. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Amen.